Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I'm Diana Sugg of the Baltimore Sun. This is episode two of The Wait, a podcast about what it means to be a mother and one woman's long journey to become one. Last time, reporter Yvonne Wanger and her husband Artie committed to becoming foster parents while hoping for the chance to adopt. In some ways, their wish to adopt is at odds with the main goal of foster care to keep the children safe until their parents are able to care for them again. But sadly, in thousands of cases a year, parents are not able to care for their children, and they are put up for adoption by the foster care system. Most of the children adopted in the United States, in fact, are adopted through foster care. During the fiscal year that ended on September 30th, 2017, about 60,000 foster care children were adopted. Even so, of the more than 400,000 children in foster care at the end of that year, the plan for more than half remained to reunify them with their parents. In this episode, we step away from Yvonne's story to look at this bigger picture. How are children placed in foster care? How do they leave it? How could the system work better? We brought these and other questions to Richard Barth, Dean of the School of Social Work at the University of Maryland. The foster care program, which is part of a broader child welfare system, is intended to be a place for children to go when they can't live safely with their parents. The foster care program in some ways goes all the way back to indentured children in the colonial years. This became more formalized in the 20th century, and in the mid-1950s or so, um, the foster care program started to get a little clearer that it wasn't just a poverty program, but that these kids had special needs and that they, were, they needed protection from sexual abuse and physical abuse. The federal government became involved because there were many children in the South, especially African-American children, who weren't receiving any of the services they, need, they needed. And around 1980, based on the research of scholars who had been looking at this in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the first big child welfare legislation came through, which said, great, it's fine to have a foster care program. We're willing to pay for these kids to be in foster care, 
But this can't last forever. It's not good for kids if they just stay in foster care forever. So that's the first time that we really started talking about permanency and the importance of not having kids have foster care be their final destination of, for childhood, but either going home, being reunified, or getting adopted. What are the reasons that a child might end up going into foster care? What, what would the safety concerns be? So the greatest concern is called neglect, and that could be anything from children who are malnourished to children who are unsupervised and left alone um, for a long period of time. Um, or it could be that there's um, chronic and persistent mental health problems or substance abuse problems that keep a parent from being able to pay enough attention to their child's needs to give us confidence as a society that they, that child would have a fair chance to have decent development. And what triggers a child to wind up in the foster care system? How does that work? Children who go into the child welfare system rarely go there first. First, what happens is they have someone who expresses concern, could be a daycare provider, it could be a neighbor, it could be a family member, about their well-being. An agent of the child welfare agency comes out to talk with them and to find out more about what the situation is. Usually that will occur several times and there'll be parenting classes and services in between before the agency would get to the point of saying, this situation has become too difficult for this child, too dangerous, and we need to remove this child from their family. Okay, so there's actually several steps along the way. Unless I suppose there, there might be something where it's just completely dangerous, where a child would be pulled out quickly? Sometimes or? children are pulled out quickly and briefly and then returned back. So there's an emergency foster care program. So if a parent doesn't show up at night and the child is alone and a neighbor calls, that child may have to go into foster care briefly. But then when the parent comes home and things are, are if they're clearly stabilized, the child would go back home. In other cases, yes, if there's very harsh uh, maltreatment, if there's dangerous physical abuse or sexual abuse, then there's likely to be a foster care placement sooner than there is if there's neglect. But most of the cases, 80% or so of the kids who go into foster care start there having had a call about how they've been neglected. Tell us a little bit about who the people are who are foster care parents. So foster parents are people who have decided that one of the things that they can contribute is the care and uh, attention of themselves as parents to assist children. Now, more and more, we're trying to recruit foster parents who also understand that they have a dual role, which is not only to assist the children, but to do everything they can to help the parents of those children um, to uh, provide an adequate and safe level of care, and so that they are duly involved with both the parent and the child. So it used to be much more of a focus on the child, and now it's extending the support that foster parent is extending their support to the parents of the children. Yes, it used to be that a child would go into foster care and they'd have almost no contact or no contact with anyone, with the courts or with the uh, parents of the child. Now in quality parenting, 
We expect that, for example, the first day that a child is in foster care, that the foster parent would reach out to the birth parent to say, um, your child's with me now. Um, is there anything that I should know about your child? Is there anything they really like to eat or things that scare them or worry them? Um, let me know what you think would be the best thing for me to do to help your child make this adjustment. So those are the kinds of changes we see. We also see that over time, the expectation is much more clearly that a child won't stay in foster care forever, that they will try to get them to go back home and through what they call a reunification process. Dean Barth, um, tell us about the need for foster parents. Do we have enough? Are children waiting to be placed in foster care, you know, held at a DSS office overnight because there's not a spot? Yes, we absolutely have a significant need for more foster parents. And children do end up waiting in DSS offices, as you say, uh, and also not being in foster homes that can keep them for very long, being in what we call emergency foster homes, where they may have to move very quickly into another temporary placement. And um, and even then, again, um, we also have too many children who are in group homes and really need to be in a family-like setting because it is much better for kids not to wake up to somebody different every morning, but instead to actually be with their a family that cares for them in the same way every day. So there's a need for foster parents of older kids. There's a need for foster parents of these many very young children who are coming into foster care because of the opioid addiction. And there are many roles to play for anyone who's interested in the excitement and joy of foster parenting. What is the system for getting the children back with their families? And how do the courts or the social workers know it's time? So the reunification process varies a great amount. The court does oversee the placement of a child who's been in foster care, and so there are timelines that must be met whereby the um, court reviews the need to continue the child in foster care. If the judge no longer sees that need continuing, then the child will be returned home. One of the big challenges with the reunification process is that the way our federal funding works for foster care, which is a federal program, although the states help out a lot, is that once a child goes home, the money for foster care vanishes. There's no equivalent stream of funds for a child who's living with their parents, and there are very few services that occur after the child goes home. So we're seeing high re-entry rates after reunification across the country. And the reason is that we need to have much more continuous services after a child goes home. One of the tensions that our reporter Yvonne Wanger encountered uh, herself on her journey as a foster parent was um, a group of foster parents who were upset on Facebook pages and support groups that there were foster parents who wanted to adopt because they believed that that was counter to the main purpose of the system, with, which is reunification. Yet, in fact, the numbers show most children who are adopted in this country are adopted out of foster care. So can you talk a little bit about that tension and maybe how things have evolved over time? 
So for more than 30 years now, we've had in the United States a program that we call concurrent planning, which means that when a child goes into foster care, the foster family and the child welfare worker and the courts work together to concurrently try to cover the two possible outcomes. One of them is reunification and one of them is adoption. Of course, the third possible outcome would be that the child would stay in foster care forever or until they were you know, emancipated at age 21, but that is not something we view as an acceptable third alternative. So there really are these two concurrent plans which should be ongoing. So it should be no surprise to anyone that if a child can't be reunified, that they would um, not want to move that child. They would want to build on the relationship that that child has with their foster parents and move on to an adoption. This is unusual. It is difficult for people to think about. We're one of the only countries in the world that does this. Um, most other countries don't um, allow foster parents to adopt. And in fact, they don't do nearly the same level of adoption as we do in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about why the U.S. does allow it and the other countries don't? How do they handle the situation in other countries? I've worked in Sweden for a long time, and in Sweden they don't allow any children to be adopted from foster care, even though they've now learned through very good research that the children don't do particularly well in foster care. Their outcomes don't compare well to the general population and maybe they should be placing them for adoption, but they see it as a human rights issue. They say that it would be unfair to the birth families to um, have their parental rights terminated so that they don't want to do that. And sometimes even when the birth families say, no, I think this child is better off in foster care, I'm willing to relinquish my parental rights, they don't even have a good mechanism for terminating those parental rights. So there's a whole range of ways to think about this, but the basic um, concept of the U.S. now for at least since the 1980s has been that, uh, yes, it is a hardship for parents to have their parental rights terminated, but we can address that in a variety of different ways. We can try to increase open adoption so that kids who get adopted from foster care will have contact with their foster parents. And now even in some states, um, children are allowed at a later point in time um, to petition to be reunified with their birth families if that's something that they uh, think is in their best interest and if the Child Welfare Services Agency and the courts agree with them. Mm-hmm. And. It sounds like at the heart of it, the United States has taken the route of the child's interest perhaps being more paramount. Where will the child be safe and well cared for? That's considered the priority, yes, that it is a child-serving program. It's not so much about the parents. It's not about the foster parents who might be disappointed if the child doesn't stay with them, nor is it entirely about the birth parents who would be disappointed if they had their parental rights terminated. The idea is to find the best um, permanent place for a child to grow up, and the emphasis is on the permanency, so that they should have a family that makes a lifetime commitment to them, because we know more and more every year that the responsibilities of parents and the needs of parents don't end at 18 or 21. They go much beyond that. We'll be back after a short break. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One of the issues that is important in thinking through this question about reunification and adoption is that there are both class and race considerations that often come up. So the parents who lose their children to the Child Welfare Agency are from all backgrounds, but disproportionately African-American and almost universally poor and distressed and troubled. And so one of the questions that has been alive and remains um, pertinent is whether this is fair, whether it makes sense that the um, wealthier who can pass the adoption test and get an attorney, although most adoptions are done without a lot of expense, um, and um, and have a safe, stable home should have the advantage of taking in children who are coming from a different class and perhaps a different race. And so that's been a huge tension in the adoption world since the 1970s. There has been a strong view of some social workers that there should not be any transracial placements. And they probably would even argue, although this isn't so clearly articulated, that there shouldn't be any trans-class placements, that class should not matter either, that people should be allowed to stay within their communities and within their networks and within their race when they're adopted. The federal law has been clear about this, that under the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, that children should not be denied an adoptive home because of their race, just as you um, would not require that a child be taught by a teacher of the same race. The federal government won't require that a child be adopted by someone of the same race, and that adoption is a public good, and that all children should have access to it, and it shouldn't uh, be slowed down waiting to find the right family of exactly the same race as the child who needs the placement. So that was the problem. When they tried to match too closely, um, it really slowed down adoption. There's still an effort to match racially and ethnically when that's possible. Um, But, and there's a lot of, as I say, a lot of placement with relatives helps to accomplish that. But that is um, another issue that certainly is always pertinent is this issue of 
class or racial discrimination that might be built into the child welfare system. Have there been any studies or is there research that that kind of looks at that question? In other words, if a child is from one class and adopted by a family in another class or one race and adopted by another a family who's a different race, what the outcome is for that? There is some research on this uh, particular question. Um, one part of the research that we did in California showed that if you looked at young children uh, who were um, less than one when they came into child welfare and you followed them for six years, that the likelihood that an African-American child would either go home or get adopted, so get permanency, was about one-sixth what it was for uh, white children and about half of what it was for Hispanic children. So it was pretty clear that the way the system was working was determining that a lot of African-American kids were going to stay in foster care because they weren't going to find that African-American family to adopt them. Now, hopefully that has changed. That was a you know, a dozen years ago or so. Um, but that's one part of the equation. The other part of it is that there are some studies on transracially adopted kids that basically say, yes, they don't have as strong a racial identity. And if you think having a strong racial identity is really critical to success, then that would be a worrisome sign from those studies. But on the other hand, they do have good developmental outcomes. Um, so they have... Um, a later time to first birth, they have more education, they have uh, pretty good outcomes when they're adopted transracially. So the evidence is not clear enough to say one way or the other, but the basic principle behind these laws is, as I said, that adoption is a public good and anything that delays or denies adoption is a violation of that child's right to that public good. And it sounds like, um, as as our reporter Yvonne has written about in her experience, there are many moral dilemmas along the way. Um, she came to love the family, the, the the father, and but if she had concerns, she didn't want to undermine him. But should she report the concerns? Is that what it's typical for foster parents? Well, it's great that she stayed connected to the father well enough to understand the value of his fathering to this child and also to see the ups and downs and the risks. So kudos there. Um, I don't know how many foster parents stay connected that long. The system really isn't structured in a way that allows many foster parents to stay connected to the kids who have left. They end up often with another child fairly soon, and they you know get engaged in, in their current family situation. But it is very helpful when foster parents do um, continue to support families. Um, we developed a program in California where we placed mothers and children together into foster homes. And one of the ambitions there was to stabilize the family, help the mother and child. Usually there were some dads and kids to improve their parenting, to let them go, but then to have follow-up so it could help them adjust to what they needed to do when they were out on their own. And that's a big need in general, to have more follow-up with families that are getting their kids back. And so the fact that um, Yvonne Wenger was willing to and interested in being involved with this father and helping out in the future, being eyes on the child as well as perhaps providing some support is the kind of thing that lots more kids need as well. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about this California program? That's fascinating. So you actually bring the child and the parent to a foster home. So the parent's there, and I guess that extends the idea of this isn't just about the kids. This is about their parents. Yeah, we called this program Shared Family Care, and it was based on programs we'd seen around the world and a few in the United States. And we um, saw really positive results. Some people would say, who wants to take an abusing parent into their home? But many other parents would say, well, I've got kids and nephews and nieces who are coming into my home, and none of them are perfect either, and I'm willing to support them. And we saw um, families where the children were afraid of their parents, uh, learned to be with their parents in a comfortable way. We saw parents get back on their feet and uh, start getting employment and start regularizing their hours and understanding their responsibilities. And we saw families where these relationships continued and every birthday and every Thanksgiving, they still would have reunions and get together um, even though they weren't blood relatives. What do you think at this point uh, needs to change about the system? It sounds like this idea of bringing more support to these families who were struggling and had the children taken away, and now the children are back, but the family's not in any better position. So many go back into the foster care system. Yes, I think that the reunification problems are significant, and we really need to think about these careers of these families as not starting and stopping when the child goes into foster care. These are families that have two or three or four contacts with child welfare before the child ever goes into foster care. And then when the child goes home, uh, they are going to continue to have these contacts or these needs. So instead of thinking of it only because of these major events, we need to think about it in longer time blocks that I would say that any child who comes to the attention of the child welfare agency from different people reporting about their neglect and the vulnerabilities they have probably needs four or five years of services of various levels of intensity, might include foster care, might include some in-home services, certainly would include parent training, might probably will include special education, so that we ought to be thinking about longer periods of service for these very vulnerable families who otherwise will, as we've seen from the research, have children who grow up and then need foster care for themselves as well. Dean Barth, tell us a little bit about the social workers who are in the middle of this system, which must be incredibly emotional and lots of tough decisions and lots of heartbreaking cases. What is it like for these workers? So the child welfare workers who work with these families and children are some of the hardest working um, of all of our public employees. It's a great challenge not only to work in difficult environments where there's violence and there's homelessness and there's despair, but also to deal with the issues of longing and caring and um, the suffering of children when they're separated from their parents because they often don't want to be separated even though they aren't getting good parenting, and the, the pain and suffering of parents and even certainly the concerns of those who want to foster or adopt them and do that well. So what we're trying to do is to provide better preparation and support for these child welfare workers, many of whom are social workers, but not all are social workers or well-trained. By doing more training, 
by providing more assistance to the leadership of child welfare agencies with regard to how to support child welfare workers, to provide um, better salaries and support for them. In many states, they are extremely poorly paid, um, barely um, you know, more than $20,000. Um, in other states, they get true professional payment and they have good supervision and they have leaders who are getting support uh, for how to run an agency that's responsive. But there's no question that secondary traumatic stress for these first responders is very similar to what you see in police departments and fire departments and other places where people are going out into environments that are dangerous and risky and full of life's most difficult and deepest pains and trying to make sense out of that and come up with the best solution they can. Is there a typical um, number of years that the average social worker or who's engaged in this child welfare work will last on the job? Is there a lot of turnover? So there is a lot of turnover in the child welfare workforce, but it also varies greatly depending on the amount of preparation that they've had and the kind of agency supervision and climate that they get. So in states and cities where there are um, very little training, uh, people don't last often more than a year or two. In other places where you have a class of social workers who have their master's degrees and have really been trained about child welfare and have the support of their agency leadership and the political support right up to the top of state government, um, people are working for much longer periods of time and have long and successful careers in child welfare. What are the outcomes that we have for foster children in this country? So the outcomes for children in foster care are a bit hard to pin down. The um, What we do know is that a growing proportion of the children who come into foster care won't grow up in foster care, so they'll move off into other lives. Um, the ones who do leave foster care often come in when they're older, when they're teenagers, and they struggle, although we've gotten a lot better at that. And um, although too many of them are falling into homelessness and despair, they um, a lot more than ever before are going to college and are having better lives. And we're now supporting them for a longer period of time with a variety of different kinds of health care and behavioral health and and economic programs. So we're getting better there, but it is very difficult for kids who have experienced the despairs of adverse family life, the violence, the malnutrition, the other things that they're getting um, to, to do well. We do know that kids who get adopted um, tend to do a little better than kids who are in foster care, but they don't do as well as kids in the general public. So I guess that would be the way I would summarize what happens to kids who are in foster care. They have a hard time. They can't rely on their families for anything um, much. And so they're kind of out there on their own. Sometimes they latch up with a mentor or with an adoptive family or with a guardian or with a coach, and they may do well. And most of them will say, thank God you got me out of that degrading situation. So from their perspective... Um, it's not that they aren't. There isn't some ambiguity or ambivalence about what happened to them, but most of them will say in interviews that we've done that um, 
thank goodness you gave me another chance. I'll, I'm going to try to take advantage of it. Dean Barth, could you tell us a little bit about your personal experience? Um, we did not realize that mm-hmm. you actually were a foster father yourself, you and you and your wife. Can you That's tell right. us about that? Sure. Um, so my wife and I took into foster children who were two and three at the time. James was the older. Uh, his Their mother was Caucasian, and his father was um, Caucasian, perhaps, and his sister is had an African American father, so we have a biracial adopted family. Uh, our kids are now in their mid thirties. Um, we're very thrilled that we now that our youngest Katrina has a, a daughter, our granddaughter and Naya, who and they live just a couple miles from us. And um, so we went through the process of not knowing whether there would be a reunification. Took quite a few years to sort out what was going on with the presumed fathers of James, and they competed in court to try to get him to um, live with them, but that one was in prison and one didn't really have much of a case. And um, so eventually they were freed to be adopted, and we adopted them when they were about five and six. So you took them in at two and three as foster children. Did you know that there was going to be a chance for adoption with them, or did that only develop over time? We certainly knew that there would be a chance for adoption, yes. Um, And so it was one of those concurrent planning situations. Our youngest had been in care really almost her whole life, and our oldest a little less than that. But we, you know, hoped that it would be us. We did develop a relationship with uh, their birth mom, and we still have that relationship. We still talk to her on the phone sometimes. And um, and our son has come back to live with her at times when he became a young adult. And that's been a complicated but interesting relationship. And so that's um, where we are. And we've seen a lot of that variability that I talked about. It's um, led to um, a very challenging, uh, eye-opening way of life at times and, and at other times very conventional. So. We're very thankful that we had that opportunity and that we have those wonderful kids and um, and now a granddaughter. Dean Barth, thanks so much for being with us today. It was a great conversation, and I'm hoping it helped our listeners understand the system. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great privilege to talk with you and to your listeners. Richard Barth is Dean of the School of Social Work at the University of Maryland. He is the co-author or editor of a dozen books on child welfare and has directed over 50 studies. Next time on The Wait. 24 hours into their stint as foster parents, Yvonne and Artie encounter the first of many moral dilemmas. Their hopes, the system's goals, What's best for their foster son? Can it all line up? The Wait is a podcast of the Baltimore Sun. Yvonne's story is also being told through words, pictures, and video on our website. Go to baltimoresun.com slash the wait. This episode was recorded at WYPR Radio in Baltimore. 
Sound engineering by Luke Spicknell. For Yvonne Wanger and producers Hallie Miller and Steve Early, I'm Diana Sugg. Bye-bye.